dire. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look at verses 14 through 21 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. So we're uh, looking at the second of Paul's prayers that are recorded in Ephesians uh, for the, his prayer for the reader, uh, the readers of his letter. And we've been um, actually using this prayer regularly in our home group uh, that's met on the fourth Sunday of the month at our house. Uh, we've been praying this prayer for ourselves, for our church. Uh, Christian prayer is uh, very simply, it's talking to God, right? That's the way that we can all understand it. Uh, we use the common language, right? Most of us here speak English, so we use English. We use uh, generally familiar vocabulary, usually. Uh, but the concepts, the concepts, the things for which we pray and the things about which we pray are uh, particularly shaped by a relationship that we enjoy, that um, we have with God by his grace. So like, um, like regular speech is learned in relationship, uh, prayer is something learned in relationship, and it's learned over time, right? Uh, D.A. Carson <clears throat> Um, says that Christians learn to pray by listening to those around them. Christians learn to pray by listening to those around them. Uh, I've, that's my experience when I became a Christian in college, listening to other Christians pray and having that shape, but even more so, I think the best place to listen to prayer and to learn about prayer is uh, in the Bible itself. Right? Because God wants us to pray, and he knows that we need instruction uh, we need examples, so he's given us hundreds and hundreds of examples of, uh, that, that we can listen in on you know, of how to pray. Think of the Psalms. Think of Jesus himself teaching his disciples how to pray. This is one of those prayers, right? This is one of those uh, prayers recorded in scriptures that should give shape to our own prayers that we can listen to and we can learn how to pray, right? Uh, <clears throat> and it's a big prayer. It's a grand prayer, a bold prayer. It's full of superlatives. It's a prayer about the most important things in the world, and we need to make it our prayer. We need to make it our prayer, and we can make it our prayer by God's grace. So, uh, so let me pray, and then we'll read Paul's prayer here. <clears throat> Father, we pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would fix our eyes on Jesus that you would teach us about him, that you would teach us about our need for you, our dependence upon you, that, um, frankly, we're reluctant to admit most of the time. But as we hear about prayer, um, we realize uh, prayer is an expression of our complete dependence on you. And so uh, we pray that you would make us more dependent, that you would remove the obstacles in our hearts from that, that you would... Uh, overcome the, the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-sufficiency that we all instinctively possess as sinners in rebellion against you, that you would um, assure us of your love by your grace and teach us to pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first time Paul prays or he reported his prayer for the Ephesians, for the recipients of his letter in Ephesians 1 at the end of the chapter, um, he he didn't just pray, and and this, this is what he's doing again. He's not actually just praying. He's reporting his prayer. So maybe this is a regular prayer that he uh, prays for his, uh, his churches, but, uh, but he doesn't just pray, he actually teaches, right? This is set down in the scriptures to teach us something. So it's not just a prayer, he's teaching through his prayer, and what he teaches is that teaching isn't enough, you actually need prayer, right? That's one of the things that you learn from this prayer is that um, he's teaching you that teaching alone is not enough. Uh, that we need prayer. He begins his prayer. He says, for this reason, and so he's referring back actually to the end of chapter 2. Remember last week uh, we looked at the, the first part of chapter 3 where he was starting to pray for his readers and then he realized he needed to develop a bit more on a certain theme, a theme about how God normally works in confounding ways. And, but, uh, but in chapter 2, Paul was teaching about the very great unity that we have in Christ. It's already ours. Because of the gospel, we have unity. We're a church. There is this thing called the church, and it looks this way because of the gospel, because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, that people of all different backgrounds, people who are natural-born enemies even, um, are in the church being built together into a holy temple in the Lord a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, he says right at the end of chapter 2. Right? And it's a pretty overwhelming thought. Um, it goes beyond our ability to understand, really, our, our ability to comprehend what God is doing um, with us in the church. It's overwhelming. The scope of it, the scope of the theme, as we looked a few weeks ago at the temple, what the temple is, what it means, what it's supposed to be, what we are, as the church, the, the holy temple in the Lord being built up as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, it's, it's a tremendous theme. The, the scope of it is tremendous, and it runs all the way through the, the Bible, right? It goes over our heads, usually. It's, it's a big deal, and it's not just big, like there's a, there's a lot to take in. It's actually counterintuitive, as we've looked at uh, several times over the course of this series in Ephesians. <clears throat> um, the gospel and the effects of the gospel they don't make sense if you're just looking with earthly eyes, right? It's counterintuitive. You have to be told. You have to, this has to be revealed to you what God is doing, what it means, the significance of it, and the, even the wonder of it, the, the beauty of it. Um, you have to tune in uh, by faith to be able to understand God's uh, work in the church uh, in creating this temple as a dwelling place for himself. So Paul, in giving us this great doctrine of the church, 
he knows that merely teaching will not be enough, right? He's got some pretty incredible teaching in those first couple chapters. Uh, We could have spent a lot more time on it than we did. Uh, We probably spent more than enough time on it already, but but even that teaching won't be enough. Prayer is necessary to integrate that teaching into our personal lives, into our relationships, to make the truth come to life in us, and not just in us as individuals, in us as a community, in us as the church, for, for the truth that Paul has been teaching us about the church to take root and to, to blossom in our relationships, we need prayer. He knows that. Right? And so uh, Tim Keller said in a sermon <clears throat> on our passage, that if you ever read any part of the Bible and you're not moved to pray, go back, you didn't understand it. You didn't understand it. In fact, I might add, if you, if you read any part of the Bible and you're not moved to pray and to praise God, which is what Paul does at the, the end of this prayer, this doxology, um, then you need to go back. You didn't understand it. If, if reading and being taught and seeing the doctrine and seeing the truth doesn't move you internally in your relationship to God to pray and to give him thanks and to give him glory, then you didn't quite get it. And that's exactly what Paul, he knows, we need to get it, right? So he prays for us. Uh, Paul himself, who didn't, he's not just reading this, he's writing it to us. And he knows his own, uh, the, the holy word of God coming from his hand is not going to be enough. He need, the, the spirit needs to work in us. He's got to pray to embed this into our lives. <clears throat> and so if Paul himself, who wrote this part of the Bible, was moved to pray, how much more should we pray, who frankly uh, are often just stumped when reading the Bible? If you read it every day, you're probably, there's a big part of it that you're probably just stumped on every day, right? Uh, we need to pray. We need to pray so that the truth of the scriptures would take hold in our lives and our relationships. <clears throat> and so Paul does that. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So uh, bowing the knees is one posture of prayer that's recorded in the scriptures. It's a posture of submission. Right? You bow your knee before uh, somebody who's greater than you, before a king. <clears throat> it's a posture of vulnerability. When you get yourself down on your knees, there's no quick escape from the one that you're submitting yourself to. Right? <clears throat> and it's a posture of, of dependence. Right? It's a posture of pleading, of, of begging even. Right? Uh, we have a need when we get down on our knees. And he prays to the Father from whom every family is named. The Father from whom every... And this is like saying he's praying to the one true God who created everything. Everything that exists, it came from him. There's no other God. There's no God like him. And he's not just some almighty creator. He doesn't start out the prayer, I pray to the great almighty creator who created all things in heaven and on earth. Right? His prayer has a particular shape. He's praying to the Father, right? He is the Almighty Creator, but when Paul prays to him as Father, it means something specific, right? Uh, Because he is the Father. That's who he has revealed himself to be, and he's created, his his creating us is is personal. It's like a father begetting a family, That's what his creation looks like. It's like the beginning of a family in which all the people who are made in his image are meant to to love like he loves, right? 
That's what he's bringing to mind with this prayer to the Father, from whom every family is, is named. Um, that uh, all the people who are made in his image are meant to love even as God loves, even as the Father loves. He's the one from whom every family is named. And that means, so names, uh, baptism is a naming ceremony, right? Uh, where the name of God, the triune name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is placed on a Christian, and that Christian is given a new identity. That person's given a new identity. They're taken out of the old and brought into the new, brought into God's very own family and given his name, uh, the name of his family. So names are things that are given and received, right? They're not usually things that we make for ourselves because identities are meant to be given and received. Identities are not things that we uh, manage and create for ourselves, right? So God's naming us is his placing an identity upon us, his chosen identity for us, which is that we're to be like him, right? He's given us his own name. Um, <clears throat> so God is the one who tells us who we are. His identity as father is where we derive our identity, right? And Paul's been telling us about this identity that we've received from the father. It's an identity that's characterized by love, really. It's characterized by mutual self-sacrificial love uh, in the church because it's an identity that we share corporately. <clears throat> and it's just like the eternal, infinite love of the Trinity because who God is, God is a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, the being of God itself is characterized by love. And so he's, he's declaring that those who are made in his image and those who are in his church, those who are named after him, are to be a people of love. So we are, Paul has been saying, we are the temple of this living, loving God. We're the temple of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Paul is praying that we would live into that identity that we've received. That's what his prayer is. You are this, and I pray that you would become this more and more. And uh, that's a distinction that's hard to articulate, but I think you know what that means. Uh, God says, you are this. This is your identity. This is your new name. You're the temple of the living, loving God. And you need, a, you need prayer for that to become more and more an experiential reality, right? <clears throat> in your lives and your relationships. So... His prayer in, in the beginning of it, it uh, at the very least, is reminiscent of Solomon's prayer of consecration of the temple that Jerry read in our Old Testament reading in Second Chronicles 6. And in fact, there's several parallels between that Solomon's temple consecration prayer and our passage. And in fact, that's what Paul's prayer is. Paul's prayer is a temple consecration prayer. That's what this prayer is. The church is the temple. And God makes it holy, he consecrates it, by his life-giving presence. And that's what Paul's praying about, right? He says that, um, he prays in verse 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, or the, the wealth or the fortune of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Right. <clears throat> so in a sense, Paul's praying for things that we already have as Christians, but there needs to be an internalization of that truth, a materialization 
of that, uh, that reality, a realization or an experience of the things that we already have that's declared to be ours through the gospel. There needs to be an experience of it, a really knowing of it, <clears throat> a materialization of it in our relationships. And, uh, and so it's like this. There's a pretty simple illustration that I think a lot of preachers have, have used <clears throat> um, to, to illustrate that point is that say, say you've inherited a fortune from a distant relative. You've inherited it. Even in some sense you know about it. And you've got millions of dollars sitting in the bank at your disposal. All you've got to do is go and draw on it. But, uh, but you don't, and you live poor. Because even though you've got this, these resources, the wealth, this fortune, even though you've got it, you don't go and draw on it. You need to actually draw on it. It's yours. It's something you possess, but you need a connection to it for it to make a difference in your life. So you're not just living poor, right? Um, <clears throat> and so living richly, according to the gospel, according to the truth that's already, it's already true about us, this is true about us, these things that Paul is praying for us, living richly in Christ, it'll be majestic. It's not necessarily intuitive, but it's majestic and it's wonderful, and we draw on that fortune by faith. Paul says, as we consciously and deliberately and concretely and corporately live by faith. We draw on the fortune that is ours as we are deliberately living and corporately together living by faith. And for that to happen, Paul knows that God has to do what only God can do. That's why this is a prayer. <clears throat> We're dependent upon his personally doing something, right? If God is going to come into your life, God actually has to come into your life. So we're dependent on his personally, relationally moving into his temple in a way that transforms it, in a way that uh, transforms us as his people by his glorious life-giving presence. So the gospel tells us that he is more than willing to do this. He's more than willing to answer this prayer, right? In Jesus, we see what God is really like. In Jesus, we see because Jesus is God, right? there is no difference between Jesus and God. When you see Jesus, you know what God is like. In Jesus, God himself came into the world to show his glory, to be with us, right? so that we could see his glory, so that his glory could dwell among us. He's the personal God who uh, didn't remain aloof, didn't remain distant, but invaded this world, invaded our lives relationally. He became a, a human being. Right? He's a personal God who became also a man so that you could have a personal relationship with him <clears throat> so that you could know what he's really like so that you could have a relationship with him where you trust him because you know what he's really like, because he's good and you've seen his glory. And he did all this so that he could share the wealth of his glory with you who believe. <clears throat> and this is what um, one English Puritan from the 18th century, James Michael, said. In Jesus are riches if you are poor, honor if you are despised, friendship if you are forsaken, help if you are injured, mercy if you are miserable, joy 
if you are disconsolate, protection if you're in danger, deliverance if you are a captive, life if you are mortal, and all things if you have nothing at all. In Jesus are riches and all things if you have nothing at all, right? So again, read the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you acknowledge that you have nothing at all, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the, thy cross I cling, you have nothing at all, you acknowledge your total spiritual bankruptcy before God and you plead with God for his mercy alone, for a relationship with him, then the Father opens to you the vaults of the fortune of his glory. And this is what it looks like, the Holy Spirit making you able to live the life of Jesus Christ himself by faith. That sounds a little strange, but that's what the the fortune of his glory, the wealth of his glory looks like in your life is the Spirit making you able to live Jesus' own life by faith. It says that, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power, that you would be able to do something that it takes a lot of strength and power to do, right? Uh, that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? So the Spirit strengthens your faith, He makes you more dependent on God, on Christ, right? More willing to say, I got nothing here. I'm totally spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing. And if I'm going to have anything, it's going to be found in Christ. And I have everything because I have Christ, right? The Spirit is the one who makes you able to say that, makes you willing to say that. He helps you empty yourself of yourself so that Christ would live in you. That he would make his home in you. That he would dwell in your hearts through faith. And the result of this prayer is that increasingly another person would live in your life. That, that's a very strange thing to say. Right? But the result of this prayer is that increasingly another person would be alive in your life. This is like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says, it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you need, Paul knows this is what you need, God knows this is what you need. You need to grow in your ability to live this way, to live vicariously through Christ and he in you, right? We, we together Need. This is what the, the passage is about, is a temple consecration prayer. We together need to grow in our ability to live in Christ and he dwelling in us by faith for the sake of his love shaping our community, shaping the church, shaping the temple, giving it a real you know, material, uh, materialization. His love needs to materialize in the shape of our church. And that happens as we live in Christ by faith. This need that we have to grow in our ability to do that, uh, it, it can't just be met through intellectual knowledge. 
That's kind of where we all start. It's like we start amassing intellectual information and knowledge, and we start kind of shifting things around in our minds so that we can give assent to things like, you know, the basics of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, that's not enough, Paul says. Even the deepest doctrines, not enough if it's merely intellectual, right? If it doesn't sink down into your heart and start changing you from the inside out, uh, we, need, we need personal knowledge. We need relational knowledge. We need actually corporate knowledge of God, of Jesus Christ, and of his great love. We need God to come into our lives, to inhabit us and indwell us as a community uh, in a real way if we're going to really know him and if we're going to be changed by that relationship in a way that, that we're made into a suitable temple, that we're built into the temple that, um, that is a fitting dwelling place for him. Right? And this is the special work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the passage says. He's the one who makes God known to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ um, in a way that brings about transformation, in a way that brings about fruit, right? a changed life. From the inside out, the Spirit's the one who does that. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, um, that these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. These are things that are freely given to us. The gospel is true. Whether you just understand it intellectually or whether you've personalized it and made it a real, uh, like a reality in your life through your relationship with God, uh, the gospel is, is true. These things have been given to us by God. The Spirit is the one who makes us able to understand these things because the Spirit takes God's own thoughts and he plugs them into us from the inside out. And the great thing that Paul prays that we would understand these things that are freely given to us that we need to understand by the power of the Spirit, the great thing that we need to understand is the love of Christ. That's what he says. He says that you, verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that's emphatic in the original, uh, the, the word order in the original, that in love you would be rooted and grounded, may have the strength to comprehend, that is to grasp or capture, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That word surpasses is uh, like hyperbole. That's what the word comes from. Um, <clears throat> the, the hyperbolic knowledge of, uh, of the love of Christ. We need to know that. That's what we need to know, Paul says. So Peter O'Brien is a commentator on this. He says uh, about these two metaphors that appear in verse 17, uh, that you're rooted in love, you're grounded in love. They're, they're botanical and architectural metaphors. He says that love is the soil in which believers are rooted and will grow, the foundation upon which they are built. Love, the love of Christ. So we're a temple. Paul's already said we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself as he's offered to us in the gospel. 
and the dimensions of this temple, the pattern for this building, the dimensions of the temple are the dimensions of his love. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the, that you would know the height and the depth and the, the length and the width, everything about the, the dimensions of his love, what the temple is supposed to look like as it's founded upon his love. And the point of it all is that we would draw on the wealth of his love that is ours actually by birthright. As, as we've been named by this father as his adopted children. It's now our birthright, this wealth, this glory, that we would live in love as the temple that's already been built by faith in the gospel, right? The holy temple that we are, that we would live that way as we come uh, to a greater connection with Christ's love. And the point of it is so that you, plural, this is all plural language, it's all talking to the church corporately, the point of it is that you, all may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the church, when it is a community that is shaped by the love of Christ, it's a holy habitation. It's a, a fitting dwelling place for the triune God of love. The church is a true house for the glory of God, the real glory of God, which is his love. The church is a true house for that on display for all the nations to see and know what kind of God he is when we we know the love of Christ together, when we share the love of Christ together experientially, when it materializes in our relationships. So we need to know this love, and it's a love that surpasses knowledge, which means we have to be equipped by God to to be able to handle this, to be able to know it, which means we need to pray together this prayer not just for myself, but for each other. We need to pray this prayer for each other so that we can be equipped by God to be able to know this love. So what we do, just in our household, maybe they haven't even um, noticed this, but on a regular basis when we pray for a meal in our household, I basically pray, God, thank you for your love. Teach us your love so that we can live for you. Thank you for your love. Teach us more about your love so that we would be changed. That's what Paul's prayer is, and that's a prayer that we can pray forever, because there's always more to know. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. You're being equipped little by little by the work of the Spirit to be able to grasp it, to be really able to comprehend it and latch onto it and be changed by it little by little, but there's always going to be more. It's inexhaustible. The gospel of Jesus Christ is endlessly captivating. If you are bored with the gospel, Paul says that you're, you're in trouble. You don't seem to get it. You could never be bored with this love. It surpasses knowledge. <clears throat> but if you're always wishing that you knew it better, almost in a sense lamenting that you don't know it as much as you'd like to know it, wishing for more and more of it and praying for more and more of it, you're on the right track. You're beginning to get it. And that's what Paul says. It's not just a big love, you know, uh, like there's a lot of it to explore. It's not just a, a, that, that, that it's a big love that God has for us that we see in Christ. It's a, it's a strange love, right? It's not what love would look like if I were defining love. Right? 
Uh, it's one that doesn't make sense to us at first. Joe Pope likes to call it a terrifying love. A terrifying love that the infinite one who has need of nothing would come into the world and he would die for you. What does that mean for me when I'm created in his image and I'm supposed to love like he loves? That that love is supposed to characterize my relationships, that I'm named after that father and made in his image, and so his love is supposed to characterize my life. What does that mean for our love when that's what God's love really looks like? Paul prays that the Spirit would strengthen you to be able to ride that whirlwind. It's terrifying. But so you can actually understand God's love. So you can actually embrace it and not just say, oh, this is foreign and terrible to me, but that you would welcome it. Um, It's a cruciform love. That's the problem with it. We don't like that idea, that love would have to suffer, uh, that love would be hard. That's what God's love is like. And that when we're built into a holy temple, that's what our love will look like. It's cruciform. It's a suffering love, a serving love, a self-sacrificial love. The eternal, infinite love of the Trinity, it, it's the love that stands at the heart of the universe, this suffering love. It's true love. There's no other kind of love. This is what real love is. This is divine love. And it's human love. It's what human love is supposed to be, a love that gives itself for the other. And if you get that, if, if this prayer, uh, if, if the Spirit does His work <clears throat> and you start to get it, you'll be changed drastically. We'll all be changed from the inside out, and not just for your own sake, but for the sake of God's temple-building project. Right? What's the point of it all? So that the whole world would know His glory. Right? So not just for your own sake, but for the sake of all the nations for whom we're to be a house of prayer. For the sake of our neighbors and our loved ones who don't yet know Christ and the gospel. For the sake of his glory being known in the church and through the church to the ends of the earth. So this church needs to be filled with all the fullness of God. And that means with his love, shaped by his love. And it it needs to be filled with all the fullness of God for the sake of the world. For the life of the world. And that might be... Uh, the way that that materializes in our relationships in the church, it might be as simple as taking someone a meal when that person is suffering, uh, taking someone a meal when that person is celebrating, right? Um, just being faithful in your family, right? having a patience and a kindness with the people with whom you spend most of your time, a patience and a kindness that will never stop. Because for the Christian, there's no alternative to love. Faithfulness in your family, it's a simple thing. It's not very showy, but that's what it looks like. Uh, Or it might be more taxing to love like God loves. It might be much more taxing like helping others in the church with whom you're not very good friends, helping them with their finances on a regular basis. Or... um, Spending time with people who are unlike you. Whoever that, that kind of person is, people who are unlike you in the church. Maybe you're, you're watching children. 
for others. You're spending time with them. Um, That can be difficult. It can be more taxing. Helping one another grow in the faith through frequent meetings, like regular discipleship meetings, where we're learning from each other. And, And maybe this is not the first person I would have chosen to do a discipleship relationship with. This is not just kind of natural for me, uh, but the love of Christ compels us uh, to love one another in the church in that way. Or maybe it looks, this, this love, as it manifests itself in the life of our church, maybe it looks like confronting others because of their sin. Right? Confronting others in their sin with, uh, with the love of Christ, humbly and gently. Um, maybe it looks like doing what is generally unthinkable, serving others when we are suffering. When I'm suffering persecution or, or hardships or bad circumstances in my life, very bad things, and I don't stop serving others. Because of my relationship with God by faith in Christ and, and his love uh, taking shape in, in my love, right? in our love. That's what it looks like. Um, from here, Paul is going to show us more about what that looks like, how the love of God, how the love of Christ works in our community. The, the last half of the book of Ephesians is, is what this is about. <clears throat> but here he's telling us why we need the love of Christ so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God himself, so that we can be a temple that's fitting for his life-giving presence. So if you want more of God in this place, then you need to pray. That's what Paul's teaching us. It's not just about learning more, reading better books, um, even reading the scriptures themselves. Right? Amazing, wonderful, beautiful doctrine. It's got to be internalized. And only God can do that for you through his spirit's work. So if you want more of God in this place, you need to pray. And you need to get ready because he'll answer your prayer in bigger ways than you expect. Different ways than you might even imagine. Uh, Paul closes this prayer with this doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we echo Paul's prayer. It's so uh, big and bold and even frightening in some ways to imagine your spirit doing this revolutionary work of love uh, in our lives as individuals and also in our life together corporately as the church. We wonder if this is, uh, if this is too much to ask, that you would dwell among us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would be a temple shaped by your love, for all the nations to see. Is this too much for us to ask? You've said that it's impossible to ask too much, that your giving exceeds our capacity for asking or even imagining. And so we pray that you would do wonders in our church and through our church, that you would help us to know together and to share the love of Jesus Christ and to be shaped into his image as a holy temple fitting as your dwelling place. We pray that you would make your glory, your life-giving presence visible through your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.